Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you've been listening to the show, loving the show, and haven't headed over to iTunes or Apple Podcast, please do so. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. And speaking of five-star reviews, I would like to give a special shout-out to Sizzlebits. What a fun name, Sizzlebits, who says, Love it, five stars. This podcast is awesome. I've been debating whether or not I want to apply for the Peace Corps, and this podcast has helped me confirm my decision that I should. I just applied a few days ago, and I'm so excited. Hopefully, I'll be able to be interviewed on this podcast someday. Well, Sizzlebits, I hope so too. Uh, Reach out. Let me know uh, who you are. Congratulations on applying for the Peace Corps. That is awesome. I wish you the best, and hopefully one day I can help tell your story. On this week's episode of the podcast, I talk with Chris Maxwell Gaines, who served in Suriname, South America from 2000 to 2002. We talk about all things related to his service, but about rain and what he learned about rain while serving and how he turned that into a business post-Peace Corps. So without further ado, here's the My Peace Corps Story podcast. This is, this is, this is, this is my, my Peace Corps, Peace Corps, my Peace Corps, my Peace Corps story, story, story. My name is Chris Maxwell Gaines, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Very good. Very good. We're uh, having good weather down here in central Texas, so it's a beautiful day here. Yeah, it's supposed to be raining in D.C., but right now it's perfectly sunny. Uh so maybe the rain is going to hold off, which I'd be fine with, because uh, that'll give me opportunity to get outside today and uh, not be in my apartment all day. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and 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 for the uh, my Peace Corps story, my experience, rain was a big part of it, and of course, uh, as we'll talk about later, uh, the business that I developed out of that rain is an important part. So I do when it rains, uh, rains, but at the same time, uh, you know, the sunny days are, are, are awesome as well. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about that. You, uh, you definitely think about rain, probably rain a lot yes. than, 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 than most people. Most people are like, Oh man, it's raining. That's, that's horrible. You're like, Hey, that's my business. That's my business. Yeah. Bring it on. So, but no, definitely, uh, you know, we, we gotta have those breaks. Uh, so yeah. All right. Well, start off by letting everybody know uh, just a little bit about yourself, your background, and then we can start getting into your service in Suriname. Yeah. So um, I was uh, born in a, a small small town in central Texas, um, and uh, you know it was only probably about you know a little less than five thousand people. Small, you know, knit community, um, and I was raised on a 
small farm, I guess, if you want to call it that. So we always um, had, you know, cows and horses. Um, mm-hmm. And I mentioned this is because this brings up the my environmental uh, kind of interest that kind of morphed into uh, my my future career plans. And uh, and so, yeah, so, you know, uh, being in that small knit community and uh, kind of in this uh, agricultural um, area, um, going to uh, high school really fell into uh, wanting to do something, um, you know, more on the engineering side, but environmental engineering. Uh, so that kind of led me to civil engineering um, and uh, because I wanted to have an impact on the uh, built environment um, and, uh, and, and and to make an a impression there and not just kind of be, uh, um, you know, something on a unrelated environmental you know, path. So, uh, so that led me to, uh, Texas A&M university and college station. And, um, and as I should mention, um, in, in seventh grade, I actually uh, met my future wife. And so she moved to Cameron, my that small town, and she was a year younger. And, uh, you know, we didn't start dating then. It wasn't until I was a senior in high school and she was a junior. We started dating, uh, but, uh, we, uh, lasted through college and we, and we got married and, uh, and that's, and that led us into our Peace Corps sor- uh, service, uh, cause we, uh, served as a married couple. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, we, we've known each other for, you know, I guess over half our lives, uh, we've known each other and high school sweethearts and that whole thing. And, um, yeah, so, um, that's kind of my background and, and led to A&M and, and then uh, at A&M, that's where um, at that time they actually had a, a Peace Corps recruitment office on uh, the campus of Texas A&M at that time. Uh, they don't anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't like we really knew about Peace Corps, I guess, growing up. Um you know, it wasn't something that's just out there so much in pop culture or anything. And so I, I don't really know how we kind of stumbled onto the idea of, of uh, applying and, and serving in the Peace Corps. Um, but yeah, we, we, we ultimately uh, did. And, uh, and so, yeah, so that's kind of my background and kind of up to the uh, um, uh, signing up for Peace Corps service. Okay. And just as you were talking, I was relating to a lot of things that you were saying. I grew up in a rural community, uh, a lot around agriculture and farm animals, and that's where my sort of environmentalism started. I didn't even know environmentalism was a thing. I think I found mm-hmm. out in grad, yep. in, in, sort of in undergrad, I was like, oh, wait, I guess I'm an environmentalist. That's uh, right. Yeah, I, yeah, I, it's, yeah, it's, exactly. It's just, it's your nature, you know, growing up in these communities. Um, and it's not a label. It's not labeled anything. That's just the, what you do to care for the land, care for the animals. And, uh, and that's just part of life. And so, yeah, it's not until you get into these areas that are disconnected from that, where you, you know, these labels and things start to you know, pop up. And yeah. Mm-hmm. And then another thing that I'm, I'm interested in exploring, we really haven't got into your service just yet, uh, and maybe we can table the question, but I always find it interesting when I talk to people who aren't from East or West Coast or like Colorado. I feel like that's like Peace Corps, <laughs> Peace Corps country. Yes. It's like, you know, East Coast, West Coast, and then Colorado because it's Colorado. But then I talk to people like yourself, who's from small town Texas, myself being from rural Kentucky. You know, I feel that those people 
they Peace Corps doesn't get enough of them. Uh, they mm-hmm. don't, or maybe mm-hmm. they're just not uh, hearing about Peace Corps. And then also sometimes it's a little bit difficult, maybe relating to some of your peers that come from the, these coastal locations. How did how did you feel going in, into Peace Corps uh, and your your fellow Peace Corps volunteers and, and that interaction? Well, I you know just thinking about when you when you asked that, it just popped in my head. I just remember being going in. And uh, there was uh, 27 of us in our group and, and going in, you know, that that saying about, you know, Texans and, you know, everything's bigger in Texas and, you know, and uh, Texans are so whatever, you know, howdy, lively and all that, you know, stuff. I don't know. Going into it, I felt like um, uh, because there was only one other couple that was uh, in our group that was from Texas and they had went to uh, A&M as well. Which then led to uh, Blake is my my business partner right now, and that's where where our relationship started. But really going into that group, I felt like you know we uh, kind of had something to share because yeah, no one else was from you know kind of the, the mid part um, of the country. Um, yeah, it was kind of like we could share the the Texan culture with just our inside of our American group. So you know it was, it was really more of like you know hey I'm I'm kind of unique here you know and that's kind of the idea of when you go in Peace Corps into your village, you know, you really kind of get this feeling, obviously, because you're there and a different race, different ethnicity, you know, different culture. So you're unique and and you use that to help to kind of get, uh, you know, into relationships with people, I guess. So you can obviously one of the goals of Peace Corps is to, you know, teach people about, uh, you know, Americans and our culture. And um, and so I, I kind of felt like that going into it was uh, an, a way for me to kind of teach people about Texas. And uh, I, I do distinctly remember it uh, whenever we started meeting people, uh, they were like, oh, you know, so y'all are from Texas. And I'm like, <laughs> how'd you know? And they said, well, your accent. And I'm like, What? It's like you opened your mouth. Yeah, I don't have an accent. What are you talking about? And, you know, of course, you know, you live in Texas and you just don't hear an accent. But, of course, whenever you relate with people from other parts of the U.S., then, of course, your your accent comes out. But I just distinctly remember going, no, I do not have an accent. How do you all know I'm from Texas? And (laughs) and so that became a a kind of a funny thing. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, so it was really, you know, a you know, a way to use kind of this uh, idea of we're coming, you know, coming from Texan, Texas, coming from a small, really small town, uh, rural town, um, and to kind of, you know, help even teach, you know, our fellow volunteers that, uh, you know, stereotypes and whatnot are not as what they, you know, should be. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the way I felt going into it. So, um, and of course, you know, just like every Peace Corps group, you know, everyone is so, uh, just bonds immediately. And so everyone was uh, so eager to learn about each and everyone's experience, you know, growing up and, and our background. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of how the Texas kind of small town thing came into the group. Okay. It's very similar to, to my experience in being a, a Kentuckian in the Peace Corps. Now, getting into your service in Suriname, uh, let the listeners know a little bit about Suriname, because most people who are listening are a little bit more uh, worldly oriented and sort of know their geography. They probably have a good guess of where Suriname is, but I would say the vast majority of Americans, it's probably a... Maybe Asia? Is that in Africa? Is that a town? Like no clue. So yeah, let us yeah. let us know about Suriname. 
Definitely. So, um, yeah, so when whenever we signed up, uh, you know, to do the application process and we signed up as a married couple and um, I just remember sitting down with the recruiter and, uh, you know, when you fill out back then, you know, again, this is, you know, 1999 when we were doing our application process. But, you know, you had to fill out kind of your three areas, you know, ranked where you want to go. And, of course, we wanted to get as far away as possible. Most is exotic. So we, of course, hit Africa, you know, number one and Asia, number two, and, and then, like, you know, South America, number three. But the issue with married couples coming into Peace Corps is that the, the country has to have basically jobs, you know, in that uh, town of placement or village or whatever for both volunteers. So um, and that's why, you know, I think married couples only make up about 10 percent of the you know total Peace Corps volunteer population, mm-hmm. um, active population. And so um, we went in re- really not that many options uh, for placement. And so then um, uh, we kind of said, well, okay, well, you know, we're fine with, you know, whatever. And uh, it came out and they said, okay, you know, you're going to Suriname. And we were like, whoa, <laughs> Suriname, uh, is that, is that uh, Asia? You know, because again, you think of Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, no, we were even like, okay, let's get out the map. Where the heck is Suriname? And uh, and so, yeah, so that's how we kind of discovered it was uh, because prior to that, we did not know where Suriname was. Um, so Suriname is in South America. It is on the northern coast. It is part of the Guyanan Shield, um, I guess, of the uh, Amazon rainforest. Um, and so the... Um, uh, on the northern coast, there is, of course, uh, uh, Venezuela, or you got, uh, well, I'm trying to think of my geography. Uh, uh, yeah, you got Venezuela, and then to the east, then you have Guyana, uh, which I believe you just had a recent podcast with someone who has served in Guyana, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. And um, and so uh, the Guyana, and then Suriname, further to the east, and then French Guiana. And then to the south is, you know, all, in all those countries is, is Brazil, right, and the, and the Amazon rainforest. So, so that's kind of where Suriname was, but it wasn't uh, always Suriname. So in 1975, they won their independence uh, from the Netherlands, I guess won the independence. They voted uh, to be independent. And so prior to that, they were Dutch Guiana, um, just as Guyana used to be uh, British Guyana and then French Guiana is still French Guiana because French Guiana is a state of France. And, and primarily, in my opinion uh, or belief, is that the European Space uh, Agency um, does their um, rockets uh, liftoffs from French Guiana. And you can actually go and tour the facility, just like you can here with Cape Canaveral and all that. So um, anyway, so that's uh, Suriname is kind of this uh, little country is probably the size of the state of Georgia. And um, and it's probably only about 400-ish thousand people in, in the whole country. And uh, majority, probably 80% of that population, 80 to 90%, is all focused on the coast um, of Suriname. So the interior of the country is very sparsely populated. populated and it is uh, mostly made up of just small villages uh, located along uh, either roadways, but primarily rivers. Um, so there's just lots and lots of uh, villages on, on rivers um, there in Suriname. And how this came about was the uh, uh, during the late 1800s, whenever slavery was being abolished, um, the uh, slave masters back then told their slaves to just 
hey, run off into the jungle, essentially. And then after this little war thing is over, we'll come and get you and you can start working again. And essentially, these uh, slaves just, uh, you know, ran and, and established communities all throughout the interior along rivers because they were traveling by boats, you know, canoes, you know, down upriver. And, um, and so that's how all these villages got set up. And so when Peace Corps uh, was asked to come in to Suriname, one of the main objectives was to help these small villages in the interior to um, uh, start to have a, a, a little bit more development assistance. And uh, so that's kind of how the Suriname program got created. And so when we came in in 2000, the year 2000, that was the sixth year um, uh, that Peace Corps had been in Suriname. So we were Sur 6, our group. And um, and in 2010, 2011, I believe the uh, program was uh, uh, ended in Suriname. So, so Suriname right now does not have any uh, Peace Corps volunteers. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, uh, Suriname uh, as uh, where it's at. It's it's pretty amazing the, the cultural diversity, uh, and I do want to mention this uh, because that made the, the the experience so interesting and so uh, amazing um, because of just the history of Suriname and the um, uh, influx of. Uh, slaves and then indentured servants um you just have a wide ranging uh population from you know uh, african uh, uh based people uh, uh chinese javanese indian um it's just uh, and then a very very small population of, uh, of a caucasian uh, population there uh from the dutch uh, back uh history uh but yeah it's just such an amazing uh, i mean literally there's one uh street there where you're walking and there's a mosque there's a catholic church there's a hindu temple and uh and a, and a buddhist uh <laughs> yeah you know all like within just uh, a couple steps from each other and so it's a really amazing you know the diversity and uh and you know not to say that they all get along because there's always uh, issues going on there in the national government and whatnot uh, but it is uh just amazing to be in this tropical country that also has a very shared culture with the Caribbean. And so you had the, the reggae um, mm -hmm. and those type of uh, kind of cultural vibes, but yet with this uh, wide range of, uh, of people. Um, so, yeah. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's Suriname. Yeah. So uh, South America. It, but again, to this day, when we say Suriname, that we serve in Suriname, uh, uh, again, most people, as you mentioned, don't have any idea and uh so it's you know it's great because then it allows us to get into that learning that teaching mode of uh, sharing our peace corps experience with people so mm -hmm. yep uh i'm all about the third goal that's uh kind of the yep. reason I, I do this uh podcast so uh yeah thank you for for sharing that i was as as you were talking, I didn't even realize it with uh, like the French Guiana and British Guiana and then the Dutch and then I, I started. Uh, of course, like anyone does, went to Wikipedia and then I was reading about French Guiana. And it's like I had no idea that there was still a European territory. I just thought that they had just left French attached to the name. I just, yeah, I know. I mean, of course, you know, it's not something that most people think about, but uh, it's amazing. And and when you step across the river, so there's a river obviously that divides these the two countries. Uh, when you step over from Suriname to French Guiana, it's like a different world. Uh, uh, and again, it's because of uh, maybe the, uh, so the support that the French government provides. Uh, but yeah, you step across the river and immediately there's uh, stores there, like convenience stores, 
there's bottled wine and baguettes and <laughs> cheese. And you're just going, wait a minute, this is, I hopped over a river and now I'm into this like French tropical culture. So again, all those three countries, just a real uh, kind of a weird kind of area area of the world. And uh, oh, one, one thing I do want to mention that when we say Suriname and we say, well, we always say it's next to Guyana where <laughs> Jim Jones and the Kool-Aid incident happened. And then that hits people. Oh, yeah, 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 got it. You know, so we kind of have to use Guyana and the and the Jim Jones things to kind of orientate people to where we served in Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, now, now let's get into your actual service. We know that the background leading up to service, where you were serving, and I take it you were serving in one of those small villages along, along a river, uh, what did what did your what did your house look like? I mean, were you living in? I'm, I'm picturing this idyllic uh, sort of Amazon hut. Uh, where were you living? You're almost you're almost there. It it, uh, it was a hut, but uh, when you say hut, uh, you know, imagine tarantulas and termites. <laughs> you know, all that stuff goes along with a, a tropical hut. Uh, but yeah, we served in a small village called Godolo. Uh, it means essentially like, uh, you know, God's, uh, uh, you know, whole area, you know, there's a little bend in the river, uh, that we mm-hmm. were uh, on the Tapanahoni river. Um, and so they, they call this uh, little point, this, uh, Godolo. And, um, and so, yeah, so that's, uh, that's the village. And so there was probably, you know, a little less than a thousand people probably there. If, if everyone was there at one time, you know, there's a lot of transient, uh, there's a lot of gold, gold miners, gold workers, uh, that live in transient through there. But we, um, they had set up our hut, um, on the edge of the village. So the cool thing was you, when you opened our back door, it was just kind of like a wall of tropical rainforest. Uh, but that's a good thing because, you know, the seclusion was good and we could, you know, have, have that kind of space versus being, you know, smack dab in the middle of all of these huts. And this was an old village. So meaning you didn't have these like nice straight kind of streets or walking lanes. This is a hodgepodge of just houses and all different, you know, uh, orientations and everything. And so, uh, we were, you know, tucked on the edge and, uh, so it was probably, you know, measurement wise, um, it was about 15 by 15, I guess, uh, in terms of the, the house. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just your typical, you know, uh, board construction. We had a dirt floor, um, when we came in and, uh, there was a, a small piece of linoleum. And I do have to mention that we were the third set of volunteers in this particular village. And, uh, and this is important because, uh, the, one of the main goals that the villagers wanted was a consistent water source. And so the previous volunteers had tried to help them with um, digging wells, like hand digging wells, and that did mm-hmm. not pan out. And so when I came into the country with Lindsay, my wife and I, and we were in our uh, in, uh, interview, the initial interview with the country director, um, you know, one of the first questions was, are you afraid of small uh, single prop airplane rides and uh because they had kind of already put us there knowing that my engineering background they wanted to try to help this uh, village ultimately get this water well that they had been wanting to do for the last four years um and so that's how we got placed in 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 godolo and um and so yeah the um um uh, the uh our our you know just the just i mean the, the the hut was a 
our house was amazing. I mean, just uh, the whole thing. But when we came in, there was a small piece of linoleum on this dirt floor. And so we kind of, you know, said, hey, Peace Corps, we need something a little bit bigger than this. So they gave us enough to cover both of our little rooms with linoleum. And, uh, but yeah, so in our hut, just, you know, I had a tin roof, you know, so of course, whenever it was raining, it was very loud um, Mm -hmm. when it was raining. Um, And then we had a rainwater collection system. And that's what we collected, uh, our, our drinking water, drinking and cooking water. And, and then during the rainy season, we could collect enough rainwater to use that for um, uh, taking basically bucket baths uh, out behind our hut. Um, during the dry season, we had to do all everything else, uh, you know, bathing, cooking, uh, washing our clothes. I'm not cooking. I'm sorry. Uh, washing our dishes, washing our clothes. We had to do that in the river. And, um, and so, so with those seasons, uh, came kind of a change of, you know, we had to walk then every day down to the river, you know, to do, um, our, our personal bathing and everything versus during, during the rainy season, we could do a lot of that stuff at our, at our hut because we had enough, uh, rainwater that we were collecting. So, so yeah, so that's kind of the, the, the living quarters was, yeah, it was uh, just, uh, really idyllic you know it was uh, great for us and you know and you it took about a week when you got there to clean it all up and get all the you know tarantulas out and and, <laughs> and uh kill all the uh, uh termite tunnels that are coming in and and uh so yeah so there was a lot of uh clean out because it had been probably about i would say six months or so since the previous mm-hmm. volunteers have left so um, anyway, so that's uh, kind of our living. Uh, uh, oh, and uh, another thing is um, we had to dig our latrine. Um, <laughs> and so uh, uh, we did that. And uh, and I bring this up is because uh, after dug the latrine and built a little building for, for the latrine, uh, went into the Peace Corps library uh, back in the capital city. And I found this book uh, called Human Manure. Mm-hmm. And uh Myself as an engineer, understanding wastewater treatment plants and all that, I was like, hey, why don't we try to human manure? So basically, it's it's just like composting, you know, human human manure. And so, yeah, so we built this latrine, but we never used it once. And so we used the building, you know, to do our business, but we composted all of our human manure. And uh, that really became a a great thing because that was a teaching opportunity for the villagers as well because of, uh, you know, uh, probably a lot of uh, uh, volunteers, uh, you know, deal with uh, hygiene topics and, and those type of things. And and so the, the villagers, you know, were was used to uh, taking a boat out to the middle of the river to, a, you know, clump of rocks and doing their business um, or going out into the jungle and digging a small hole and doing their business. So, you know, we were able to you know, use what we were learning as a way to also teach them. But that became part of, you know, our, our living experience was uh, that as well. So, uh, and, I, and again, as an engineer, I kind of geeked out on on all that, uh, how how well it composted and uh, how quickly, obviously, in the, in the tropical environment. But uh, anyways, I'm going on a little bit more about the living uh, deal. But, uh, yeah, that was our, our, our day-to-day setup there with our, with our hut and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I'm fine with geeking out, especially things related to uh, engineering and environmentalism. Uh, then you bring in poop in there. You know, I'm a yeah, volunteer, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm down. That's, <laughs> a, that's a topic all of us have to like. Even if you're not with it when you go into it, you're gonna have to you know get get understanding about that because that becomes a part of your daily life there. You know, continuing with that. So yep. Mm-hmm. So as a volunteer. 
what what exactly were you assigned to do? So we we know the the water project. That's what where you were placed in this particular village. Two previous volunteers they weren't able to to get this project done. You did some composting, toilet work, but what was your what was your title? What, what sort of you know uh, sometimes arbitrary title uh, that Peace Corps gives you? But what what label did you have on your resume post Peace Corps? The label is rural community development specialist. And uh, I say that uh, kind of with a little laugh because when we heard that, we said, what? We're not a specialist in rural community <laughs> development. And um, and so, again, it's a, a general label. Um, but, yeah, we really felt like when we came into the village situation, um, you know, that our goal was to, um, uh, you know, listen to the villagers, listen to the different organizations that the village that the village had developed over many many years and and listen to what their needs were and then from that um, kind of figure out ways how to build their capacity to implement these things if say you know once we are gone and, and once Peace Corps is gone and and so yeah so while that was our title that was all it was and so um, but and it really just fell into hey we want to help out with whatever is going to be What's, whatever is going to help the most people forward in terms of uh, development and, and uh, making their lives easier. Um, but, yeah, so rural community development specialists. And, um, you know, there were other volunteers in our group who were stationed in uh, areas closer to town. Uh, and they had spe- other uh, titles uh, such as, uh, you know, health education volunteers. Um, uh, some were teachers, you know, so education um, title. So it's not like everyone in, in Suriname was this rural community development specialist uh, title. Uh, but, yeah, that was uh, that was our uh, our official title there. Okay. And what were some of your your big projects that you did uh, while serving? Yeah, so, you know, with the water well project, that was just a long, ongoing, uh, you know, uh, whenever you would have a, a meeting with one of the, uh, you know, the, one of the men's groups or one of the women's groups, you know, you would bring up what's the next steps, what do we need to be doing? So that just was a very long project. So obviously we had to fill our time with doing um, other stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so we just did a bunch of smaller projects um, and kind of our one mainstay project was after we got there and, and, and learned that, you know, the kids in the uh, village school, you know, they get out at one, one o'clock because obviously the school isn't uh, cooking meals or anything like that. So kids get out at one to go and eat lunch. And that was it for their education day. And so we wanted to extend that. So we developed a uh, basically an after school program. And uh, uh, Lindsay and I would be up there. And, you know, and over the years of our service, you know, we were able to get uh, various uh, games and, you know, educational puzzles and, and different things donated. Um, and so then we were able to stock kind of like an after school program closet, I guess you want to call it that. And uh, but, yeah, we were really, really there just to. Um, uh, give the kids you know more structure, you know, and a little bit more time than just you know going off and and doing whatever the rest of the day because you know a lot of times it was chores. Uh, you know, they would go back to their house, you know, a little hut, and their parents would make them you know um, do something. You know, go and uh, fetch water, go and clean these, uh, look after your younger sibling. Um, you know, and so the kids really uh, had a limited amount of educational time. So that was our kind of our, our day-to-day main kind of good uh, good focus for us because it gave us something you know every day to look forward to and um, and uh, and to take up you know that time and to feel like we were actually 
you know, affecting and, and affecting the next generation. Um, and so that, um, and in, in related to the school, um, you know, the school um, have no sorts of maps or any type of resources like that. So we did that uh, kind of typical Peace Corps project where you paint the world map, you know, on one mm-hmm. of the walls of the school. Um, and so we were able to really do a, a, a neat project with that. And so we got some of the uh, 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 local artists involved. And so because uh, the uh, the Injukin people, that's the name of the, the, the culture of people that in that village, in that area, um, they had this kind of unique art that has evolved over the many, many uh, uh, years. And uh, so we were able to bring in these artist guys to kind of do this uh, uh, interlocking chain uh, kind of uh, around the uh, a map. And, and it was a, a pretty big wall. It was a, a, a pretty uh, uh, ambitious, I guess, the world map that we did on this uh, huge wall. And um, but we did that. And, and the way we did it is we drew out everything and then, of course, paint it in the out on the outlines. And then we had the kids come in and paint inside, you know, so we made sure that they could stay, you know, and not have to repaint parts of the wall or whatever. And so really, uh, it was a good way to get kids involved. And, and they just loved it, you know, painting uh, on the school. And so we did the world map. And then on a smaller wall, we also did a map of Suriname, because obviously, they don't even have a they didn't even have a map of uh, Suriname. So we did a, a map of Suriname and um, all the rivers, all the various little uh, villages and towns. Um, Another thing related to the school is uh, we uh, uh, raise money through, you know, I guess, my my parents' church um, to purchase books. We also were able to uh, get books donated through a nonprofit, a, a Dutch nonprofit, in, that works in uh, in Suriname uh, that brings uh, library books from the Netherlands. Um, and so we were able to accumulate a lot of books and bring those to the village to to stock the library. So that was something we worked on. Um, do you did y'all do a uh, Project and design, project design and management training over in uh, Burkina Faso. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's a still the the you know what they what Peace Corps teaches or, or does or or maybe it's just certain countries. I don't know. I mean, we had some stuff, and I remember. I mean, because it gets minced because then I started like reading a lot of the Peace Corps resources. So if, like what yeah. was actually taught to me versus what I I consumed gets mixed. But I remember a lot of our training was more of the sort of the, the PACA, the sort of the community development model of how you actually figure out what your community needs. Yes. And I, don't, I don't think we were really trained too much during training of, okay, you figured out the need. How do you figure yeah, out how to yeah. do it? <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, so it was that 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 PACA, that community, you know, let, let's uh, all brainstorm and let's come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, uh, you know, we had this training about, you know, you know, how to design a, you know, a rural based project, you know, how to seek out grant opportunities. And, and so we decided that this was all great information for us. How about we put on a training like this for the leaders of our village? So we, mm-hmm. we actually did that training and it was a multi-day training. Uh, we got a little bit of funding from the spa, I guess it was small project assistance. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in order to have uh, you know, meals cooked so that then, you know, it, we could stay all in one spot and not have to like, you know, everyone disperse and go eat and come back. And, um, and so, yeah, it was a multi-day training and uh, really had a good time with that. And uh, the villagers uh, and the leaders there got, I think, a lot out of that. And so 
um, you know, that took time to kind of organize and to teach all that. And of course, you're teaching it in, you know, the local language. And so you're having to translate some of these development concepts down to the local language, which, uh, you know, doesn't always have words for all these various uh, higher end um, kind of ideas. And so uh, teaching that in the local language. Um, another small project we did was a, uh, a sewing a training project with uh, the women's group there in the in the village, and so we were able to get funded to buy uh, foot treadle um, sewing machines because obviously mm-hmm. we we had no electricity in the village, um, and so uh, we were able to transport those to the village, and then we brought in two uh, fellow volunteers who were very very good at uh, sewing, both crocheting and uh, you know sewing machine sewing all that. So brought them in and along with my wife uh, did this really awesome training uh, with the women's group there. And then, of course, ended with uh, the donation of these sewing machines that uh, lived in the uh, uh, or stored in the women's uh, uh, group uh, house, I guess, if you want to call it that. So um, that was another uh, project we did. Um, We taught English lessons to uh, some of the village adults who were interested in learning English. So we, we did that for a little bit of time. Um, we did a little bit of uh, kind of small business consulting, I guess you want to call it that, or entrepreneur mm-hmm. consulting uh, with a few of our counterparts who were really gung-ho about uh, starting uh, small businesses. Uh, one wanted to start a, uh, a chicken uh, egg production company, um, you know, again, just for local supply, you know, not for any sort of big production. Um, so it was just, you know, helping out with these small business ideas. And uh, so, yeah, that was uh, really, you know, a gist of uh, all the, you know, the, the key projects that we did throughout the two years that we were there. So, yeah, quite quite a bit. And I, I, I think I and most volunteers can relate. You've got these big overarching projects that, you know, kind of take the full two years to realize. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you've got all this other downtime that you just tried to have figure out, okay, what does the community need and what can I actually provide and, you know, work exactly. within, that, within that space. That's right. And, you know, because you don't want to just lay around in a hammock all day, right? I mean, you're there, you want to uh, help people. And, and yeah, you know, between those meetings with the water project, you know, it's like just being there, you know, to support and, and, and help out in, in every way we could. And so that's where we kind of got into all these smaller, smaller little projects. Yeah, I mean, you can you can still have probably 10 projects running and still spend every afternoon in, in, in a hammock. <laughs> That's true. You're right. No, the, the, the pace of life and the way in these uh, developing countries, definitely, you're, you're absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Well, because this is the, the Peace Corps Story podcast, do you have any particular stories from your service that uh, you like to share in general at parties, those crazy moments uh, that, that happened over the two years? Uh, yeah, l- let us know. Hit us with the story. Yeah, well, um, I guess I want to start out with one that's, I guess, more on the serious side. Um, so we served from 2000 to 2002. And, um, and so we came into the country in September 2000. And so um, September 2011 was mm-hmm. our one-year anniversary. So we were all set to come. All the volunteers are going to come back to the capital city to have a one-year anniversary party. And, um, and so that morning that uh, we were leaving our village, uh, this was going to be the first time we were going to take a boat all the way down the river to the coastal city and get on a bus and travel four hours over to the capital city. 
So we had to start early, and we knew we were going to get to the uh, capital city late. And so we got off real early and was traveling the whole day. And uh, we got to the uh, the little hostel where we all convened, and uh, we noticed that the light in the TV room was still on. And so we uh, had just had this amazing experience of traveling all day on this tropical forest river seeing monkeys and all this stuff and we were going to come in and just go oh guys you know you won't believe what we just you know, experienced and when we came in and everyone was glued to the tv and at that time uh, uh president bush uh was addressing the nation and uh so 9-11 um, happened that morning while we were uh traveling uh to to the capital city so we had no knowledge nothing at all we, every morning we would listen to VOA, Voice of America, on our shortwave radio. And so the edition that we had listened that morning was prior to the attacks happening. So um, anyway, so that was a big uh, punch in the gut, um, you know, that day. And, and basically the, the, our Peace Corps one-year anniversary was a pretty uh, sad um, occasion because of what was happening back in America. And uh, and so what was uh, – and so that happened and, and, and then we – you know, a couple of days later, we went back, you know, out to the village. And what's amazing is just uh, even being so disconnected that our villagers still somehow through the grapevine found out about this. And uh, mm-hmm. and it was just so amazing coming back to the village and just seeing this outpour of because uh, we've been there a year. So we've been, you know, we're solid in the community. Everyone really loves us and appreciated us. And just the outpouring of uh, again, them not understanding how big America is, and they were going, "Oh my God, we heard about these, uh, you know, planes going to buildings. Is your family safe? Did anyone in your family get hurt?" And and you know, try to have to explain all that. And you know, we did have, I believe, uh, you know, one person that did have a family member living in in New York at that time, but you know, no one was directly affected. Um, and so, just having to explain that to them. But then they were just like, "You need to tell your family to move here. Like, it's not safe in America." Tell them to move here. We'll build a house for them. We'll cook for them. I mean, it was just so amazing to see the appreciation and, and their concern for us. And uh, and so then you had to kind of you know get into you know you know that well you know no one from our family lives in New York and and that's way far away from Texas and and all that. But it was just a a surreal you know I guess time uh, in, in in our service and uh, and then you fast forward coming back when we came back to country it we really felt like america changed uh, you know we were away during this time and i remember coming back going holy moly we're, we're all these american flags american flags everywhere right it was just like this you know the, uh, the you know reconstruction and those different things by the time we got back was already you know uh, being discussed and, and so it was just this change in this american the culture and and being away and then coming back into it was allowed us to really see that and uh, uh, you know so again you know for for the better you know for Americans to be all on one page versus being divided uh, but yeah that was a, a kind of a, a serious kind of note in our service and uh, and uh, you know it is what it is you know we were away at that time and uh, but it was just a way for us to another teaching opportunity to kind of uh, show Americans that, you know, there was a change, you know, and that uh, being away from it, you could see it. But while you're here just living as an American, you probably didn't really notice much of a change in the culture, but we were able to really uh, see that change happen. So that's uh, 
one of the the bigger I guess uh, you know stories from our service and uh, um, the other uh, really uh, big one was a personal one for for me and just the experience that it, that it gave me and um, so downriver the next village over um, there was a a biz excuse me Baptist missionary couple that had come in. Um, you know, about a year or so after we had uh, been there. And, um, and so we got to know them, you know, again, being fair, fellow Americans. And, uh, and, uh, and they had a, a bunch of ideas of things that, you know, they wanted to accomplish and do. And, and so one of them was uh, they wanted to build a radio tower um, on a nearby, you know, what, what they call a mountain, but it was just really just a, a, a big rise in the, in, the, in the rainforest. And they wanted to build a radio tower and, uh, you know, didn't really know the the outcome of why, you know, I just felt like, Hey, I want to help out because if there's a radio tower, then one day, you know, hopefully radio signals can make it down to the interior of Suriname from the capital city. And then people can be connected with news and all that stuff. And so, um, this is, this was a, like one of these stories where people were just trekking through the forest, you know, hacking vines and trying to make their way. Uh, we didn't necessarily have to do that to get to this mountaintop. We were able to, um, there was an old airstrip on the top of the mountain that um, Alcoa, um, mm-hmm. so uh, they're an aluminum producing company. Um, they had built this, this airstrip because they were, uh, this was back in the 60s, they were looking for bauxite in the interior of uh, Suriname. And bauxite is what they make aluminum out of. So they had built this airstrip on the top of this little rise. And so we were able to land on that. But then other than that, we just had to cut our way to the site where the radio tower is going to be, set up a primitive lean-to you know, type camp, uh, just string up your hammocks in between two uh, uh, trees. Um, and we were there for a week. Just this, It was kind of like backcountry camping but without all the great amenities of like cool <laughs> backpacks and hey, I got my tent that can just uh, explode and this is nice, you know, big tent and and um, and, it, and so. But it was so amazing just to be out there. And so uh, what we did was we just cut down a lot of trees and um, and big trees and uh, and these guys, man, they know their stuff. And so what's amazing is you know we're cutting with axes and chainsaws. But they know how to do this. So whenever you cut down one tree, it takes down like four or five other trees <laughs> as it's coming down. And uh, and so, yeah, so we were just there just to just kind of clear cut this area, which then another uh, group was going to come in uh, that actually builds radio towers. And they were going to then bring in all the sections of this radio tower to build in this clear cut area. And, uh, and so, yeah, I just remember just being out in the middle of this rainforest and all alone uh, with these guys sharing this experience and then food wise you know they brought a couple sacks of rice and a, some uh, cans of beans and then every day we would go out hunting and uh, one of the memorable stories from that was uh, we came across a bunch of uh, troop of spider monkeys and so the guys we were all running and chasing after these uh, spider monkeys you know and these trees way up uh, way up uh, uh, on top of us and and then they had shotguns and so they you know started shooting and they hit one and well, as it was falling, they got caught in a limb. So then we had to go back and get the chainsaws and everything to cut down a tree just to get a spider monkey out of this uh, tree. Um, but uh, this thing was big. And, and uh, we did the typical, I don't know if you've seen in, in these like movies where you, 
you, you strap something on a little pole and then the two guys are carrying the pole and then the, the arms and the legs of this animal is tied around this pole. Well, that's essentially what we did. And we brought it out to camp. And um, so, yeah, so I've, I've eaten spider monkey. And, um, and so that was a pretty unique um, experience. Uh, to me, it tasted like roast beef. And uh, it was just basically stewed. Uh, but yeah, that was just another little part of this like whole amazing, like, wow, what am I doing in the middle of the rainforest? You know, not not connected to anything. You know, I mean, I was literally off the reservation. And so maybe Peace Corps probably didn't like this. But I mean, there was no communication, really. Um, so, yeah, so that was an amazing, amazing experience that I brought back that uh, has really you know, showed me that. Uh, you know, there, you can do a lot of stuff and you don't need a lot of fancy equipment to, to do some of this stuff. But uh, anyways, so that was uh, kind of the two big uh, stories of my service. Mm-hmm. And did the radio tower eventually get built? It did. It got built. And, um, and you know, and like I mentioned before, you know, my hope was that radio signals could be then bounced over to there. What you know, they've even gone further now. Um, now our villagers have cell phones, and so we're actually every so often, you know, we'll get phone calls from our counterparts. Not in town. They used to have to go to town to the capital city, and they call us from a home phone or a pay phone or whatever. Now they can call us while they're in the village from their cell phone, and uh, so that has uh, completely changed. And so maybe you know some of this was uh, because of this radio tower and with cell phone relays and, and whatnot that could be attached to it. But uh, so yeah, so it has greatly I think improved uh, their lives uh, just with technology uh, and the whole leapfrog thing, right? So there's not we don't have to lay like telephone lines. They they were able to leapfrog all the way to the just cell phones. And so you uh, uh, anyway, so that so it was a good thing definitely. Um, but from the missionary point of view, it was a way for them to broadcast um, uh, 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 kind of translated Bible stories. Um, and so, again, that, that was part of it, came with the territory. And, and, you know, I understood, you know, all that. But I, I felt like there was so much more, which has panned out for, for, the, for that area of the country. So uh, has been a, a really good thing for them. Mm-hmm. And what do you miss about your time in the Peace Corps? It has that uh, that autonomy, I guess. Uh, we felt like being so far away from the capital city that we were really disconnected from Peace Corps and the office, and and we were supposed to check in radio into the office every single day uh, around around 4 p.m. So we would go to the health clinic that had the radio of the village, and we would radio in. Sometimes. <laughs> the Peace Corps office would respond and sometimes they would not. And, uh, and so we were really uh, disconnected. So really that gave us, you know, this great autonomy to uh, kind of affect change and, and do it kind of in a way that we felt like fit in with uh, our, the way that we work, but also to uh, being uh, respectful of, of our villagers and, and how they worked. And, and, and so I say I missed that, but then when I coming back to the U S and, and deciding that, you know, this autonomy is great. And what's the, you know, a, a way that you can have autonomy while trying to make money here in America? You start your own business, right? And so mm-hmm. I kind of brought that autonomy into, uh, you know, back with me and saying, hey, you know, I, I really, I, I like that. And so let's uh, try to keep that going. So that was probably 
the main and one of the big things I missed, you know, obviously the, uh, you know, just the, the people and the, the fellow volunteers and, uh, you know, all those type of things, you know, you look back and, you know, it's just so many happy memories and uh, even the, the, you know, the tough times, you know, now you look back and those are happy memories. And, um, you know, so of course, you know, you miss all of that and, and every volunteer, you know, uh, you know, definitely misses that. Um, but yeah, it was uh, that autonomy that uh, we could, uh, you know, affect change and, and, and really do and, and see outcomes, you know, from that and from that work. And we weren't just a cog in that we're you know, carrying on some, you know, certain project or certain mission, you know, from Peace Corps. And so, uh, so that was something I, I really missed from Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I definitely missed that as well. It just, the, the, the freedom of being able to kind of really structure your day however you wanted, not really yes. having to check in. I, I was sort of similar that Peace Corps more or less just trusted that we were supposed to be where we were, and, yes. yep. uh, and uh, until we broke the rules egregiously, they left us left us alone. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's uh, that was us. So yeah, so we took uh, a couple of trips over the French Guiana uh, a couple of times just because that was our way to get to the capital city. It was easy for us to just jump over on the river and go over the French Guiana, and you know, but we didn't declare that as a vacation time or whatever like you were supposed to do. And uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was if you didn't do anything uh, too bad, then yeah, Peace Corps during those times really kind of left left you to your own devices and. Uh, and, you know, that's good. And sometimes that's bad, I guess. And, and again, I don't know how the current state is in terms of uh, uh, keeping up and making sure that you know, volunteers are safe. You know, I know that that's an increasing concern with Peace Corps and um, all that. But, uh, yeah, during our time, yeah, we were kind of on our own for a bit there. So, yep. Yeah, there's always those volunteers that abuse that freedom. Uh, but for the yes. most part, I saw that uh, volunteers were behaving how they were supposed to. Yes, you're right. Definitely. Now, what is something that you learned in Peace Corps that has stayed with you? I know you, you I mean, you kind of created a, a career um, from, from Peace Corps experience, so maybe that is it, or maybe there's a, a larger, more philosophical thing that has stayed with you. Yeah, the, uh, the, the main thing that I learned is that uh, time, I guess, you know, reflecting on, on time and the... Uh, you know, time flies so fast, you know, but yet at the same time, it, it does move slow. And so what I mean is that, you know, the individual days there, I remember at Peace Corps, seemed to just go on forever. And uh, but yet you look back and you go, man, two years that went by so quickly. And, um, you know, I mean, that's something that has, has stayed with me. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, and, and this is what I I you know, a, a memory that I don't kind of like about the way I treated my time there is that I remember thinking about well, what am I going to do after service and, and kind of starting to plot my career path after service, you know, while I was in the middle of this amazing experience in the middle of the rainforest in this small little, you know, village hut, you know, and down where no one can talk to me, get to me. Um, but I remember just constantly, you know, thinking about, okay, and when we get back, then, you know, this is the place that we're going to, you know, try to find a house and an apartment or whatever. And, you know, and I can apply to this grad school and just kind of starting to think about that. And, um, you know, it wasn't like a, a consistent always, but I just remember, you know, thinking, you know, hindsight going, why, you know, why did I spend that time thinking about that, you know? 
your future is going to take care of itself. And, and, and so this, this idea of the, the focus on the present day really hit home to me. And, and so that's what one of the big things I learned from, from Peace Corps um, is, you know, the appreciation of, of the time that we have. And then, you know, and, and that you do have a lot of time to devote to your goals in your life. And that time doesn't have to just fly by. And, you know, I know we're, we seem like we were trapped in this Western culture and time goes so fast and social media and this and that and you got to be on the top of everything and uh but i've really uh, kind of from from that piece it was a good time i guess for me and my going from college prior to you know joining the rat race right so it was a good time and so that has really carried on and so um in which that helps me every day now i have a, a, a seven-year-old twin boys and so that helps me every day now to appreciate every moment that I have because as I mentioned like every the day is long but years go by so quickly and so uh, to bring that lesson from Peace Corps into my daily life into appreciation with my my sons and my wife and 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 my business and 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 all those things mm-hmm. and then uh, I guess let's get into I mean we, we we've touched on it multiple times now what what are you doing now that was sort of birthed from uh, your peace corps this water project I mean you had the engineering background we talked about the rain so let everybody know what you're currently doing and how you're maintaining that peace corps autonomy Yeah so uh in 2004 when we got back um we were um you know in the story you know this is probably not to actually how it happened, but the way I remember it is that uh, Blake, my business partner, who wasn't business partner at the time, was just a fellow returned Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, we had both moved back to Austin. And so one night we were sitting around drinking some beers and it was raining outside and we were reflecting on our service. And we were basically saying, man, you know, we would be collecting all of this rain right now because we both had, you know, uh, rainwater collection systems. And we started to say, why aren't more people doing it here in America? Why aren't people collecting rainwater like it is down in developing countries? You know, everyone has a small rain barrel, large rainwater tank, whatever it is. And so we just set upon uh, discovering, you know, well, is there legs to this idea of, of can we start designing and installing rainwater systems here in America? And so after some research, we found out that really uh, Austin, Texas, is the mecca for rainwater uh, collection um, in uh, the whole United States. Uh, at, that at that time, they had a rain barrel rebate, uh, which was kind of new. Not many uh, communities had that. Even to now, uh, you know, city of Austin has a $5,000 rebate for rainwater harvesting system, which is way higher than any other uh, city in America. And so we were just in this right spot. And so we decided, well, let's, let's start doing this. And so we started a company and uh, focusing on installing rainwater harvesting systems. And that was our first um, um, focus. And uh, the business just kind of, you know, grow, grew and grew. And But when we started it, it was pure bootstrapping. I mean, we were uh, storing all of our tools in Blake's backyard. Uh, I was still working my day job at an engineering firm. Um, because I had to accrue so much time before I could become a professional engineer. Um, mm -hmm. And so I had to do that. But then after hours, I was 
running around to people's homes and doing estimates for rainwater systems. And weekends was full of doing estimates for rainwater systems. And then we were out there on the weekends building these things. And, um, and so they just started very slow and just kind of grew and grew and grew. And then uh, from rainwater, we morphed into uh, gray water reuse systems. So this mm-hmm. is uh, shower water and sink water, um, clothes washer water, and, and taking that water and, and uh, cleaning it a little bit and then using it for irrigation use on uh, residential properties. Um, and then that morphed into um, stormwater management systems uh, because sometimes uh, people would like the idea of a rainwater system to control their stormwater issue, but they didn't want to expend the capital for the rainwater system. And they were just asking, hey, help me so my living room doesn't flood. And and so then we morphed into uh, offering uh, drainage uh, improvements and drainage systems for people. So um, so everything is centered what we do around you know rain, uh, water conservation. And so, so we built from just bootstrapping to uh, today where we have uh, – you know, it fluctuates, but between 20 to 25 employees, um, most of that is field uh, crew. Um, so we have uh, guys that are out there every single day building rainwater systems. And and we're not just talking like the small, like small systems. Like, yes, we do those, but we're lucky here in Central Texas that uh, with the hill country to the west, um, there's a lot of development pressure and people want to build out there because it's just so amazing. And you got the hills and the views and all that. Uh, well, the the well water issues out there is is uh, not I don't want to say spotty, but um, because of development pressures, uh, there's just uh, difficult now to get a good reliable well water unless you're going to drill really really deep, and then the expense of that goes up. So, we actually do a lot of potable drinking water systems out in the hill country, where we're installing 20, 30, 40 thousand gallon rainwater tanks, collecting water from the whole entire roof. Um, going through various stages of filtration and, and, and first flush, all that. And then the water comes back, gets filtered, gets UV'd, um, UV disinfected before it goes in and, and is consumed and used in the whole house. So we actually do a lot of potable drinking water systems for, for people building homes in the, in the hill country. So, so yes, it is the small little 500,000 gallon system here in the urban area of Austin, but we also do a lot of rural, uh, rainwater collection systems as well. So, um, so yeah, so that's how kind of the, the, the idea of, uh, you know, we lived off the of rainwater in Suriname and during our Peace Corps experience. And so, yeah, we, we just wanted to, uh, we felt like that's a great model going forward for everyone to employ. And so we said, well, let's how let's start a business and actually put that out there. So, um, so yeah, that's, 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 you know, kind of how we created the, the business from the uh, ideas in Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like when you first reached out to me and I was like, oh, you're doing rainwater. And then I looked on your website and you tend to think, oh, rainwater, they got rain barrels, you know, these like 55 gallon <laughs> barrels. <laughs> And then mm-hmm. it's like, oh, wow, like some of this stuff looks like it's like a tiny municipality <laughs> that you guys yeah. have like constructed. And it's like, wow. That's um, right. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, is, this our, is big. That's right. Our biggest so far is on a, a school, uh, a couple schools. Uh, we installed 150,000 gallons of storage uh, capacity, uh, but it's collecting from, you know, 40,000 square feet. So, you know, a mm-hmm. big collection area obviously you need a big storage volume and so um definitely there is uh we've done some big stuff and uh yeah to date we've installed um about seven and a half million gallons of rainwater storage uh, mm-hmm. and so again that's 
pure storage. That's not just like the accumulated collection amount. That is actually, you know, the number of tanks that, you know, I guess you could say that we've installed. So, so we've got a, done a good bit of, uh, uh, you know, a good number of projects. And uh, the great thing about our what we do in our business is that, you know, we're very passionate about it. So, you know, obviously, you know, that whole saying, like, if you're passionate about what, you know, you do, then it's not work or whatever. And that's kind of how we feel. And that, uh, you know, we do put a lot of effort and a lot of time into it, but it's just uh, something is we feel like it's that continuation from from Peace Corps and that it's a it's just a passion of ours. And so, I mean, it's just uh, we come to work every day, uh, just happy what we do. And then when we do these systems for our, our customers, they're happy you know, about what they're doing and the effect that they're going to have on decreasing water use and environmental footprint. And so that makes you happy, you know, so it's just, it's really a, a great um, a business that we've created. And, and we tried to also bring in kind of the idea of the, the Peace Corps culture into, um, you know, our business. And so I mentioned about bootstrapping. Well, at Peace Corps, a lot of times you don't have the resources to do so many things. And so you just kind of make it up as you go. And and so coming in and starting a business um, as an engineer myself, my, my business partner was a psychology major um, who had traded stocks for a little bit prior to him going to Peace Corps. We really had no like business management training or whatever. So it was just, hey, let, let's get going. And looking back, I think that was just the best thing for us is just to, to bite the bullet. We did it. And then we had that passion to carry us through those low spots and we just learned and just constantly learn, even to this day. I mean, there's just things every day that we're learning, whether it's about customer service or whether it's a technical issue. And it's just bringing that 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 bootstrapping like, oh, we don't have to wait until we have everything perfect and we have all this funding and whatever that we can just like bootstrap it let's just do it let's like like the peace corps you know oh, we want to build this latrine let's just start digging you know we don't need to wait for all these materials to come in and so anyway so that's we've tried to really bring the peace corps culture into the business culture as well Mm -hmm. yeah once you figure out how to do something for the first time in a language you just learned uh most things in the united states feel uh, pretty easy it's like well yeah i'll figure it out yeah, exactly. And uh, and that's and I just I'm indebted to Peace Corps and just uh, the service because of, again, teaching me all that at that particular time in my life. And um, and and so, yeah, I mean, for for people who are listening to this podcast that are thinking about doing a, you know becoming a Peace Corps volunteer and signing up and applying uh, is definitely it, it completely changed my life and changed the trajectory of my life. And it has put me it has made me who I am. And, uh, and that's what I love about Peace Corps is that, um, um, you know, you have your own journey and it can make you who you want to be and it can show you who you are as a person. And, and, uh, yeah, that's just uh, what's so great about Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. Well, I've had an amazing time talking to you, learning about your service, seeing reflections of sort of my my own service and, and everything that you were talking about. So it has been uh, a pleasure as you were sort of walking me down memory lane a little bit. And that's why I think a lot of return Peace Corps volunteers listen to the show as well. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for sharing with us. To close out the show, do you have a favorite quote or local saying that you would like to share? Yeah, it was it was hard to come up. Well, first, uh, Tyler, thank you for uh, allowing me to come on and, and record the podcast, uh, which uh, is a, a great opportunity, and I'm very appreciative of it. Um, 
the it's not so much a saying, I guess, when I reflect on to it, something that my wife and I, we still use to this day is uh, is just a word. And it's uh, called it's a swaki. And uh, it's it's, you know, of course, like every when you try to translate something directly into English, you know, you can't. And, uh, and so really this this idea of swaki is kind of like, you know, it's that meh, you know, kind of feeling that you have, like you're uh, a little tired, maybe a little sick, you're just unmotivated, you're just, you know. And so it's all that all wrapped into one word. And so whenever we have this feeling, it's just great. You know, we can just be like, yeah, I'm feeling swacky today, you know, and, and that really lets the, uh, you know, my, my Lindsay know, OK, well, you know, he's a little, you know, unmotivated or whatever it is. And so, uh, yeah, it's just uh, and there's a couple of other little words like that. But that that one is just it encapsulates, you know, just this easy way to convey like, you know, Hey man, I'm just, today is just not a, you know, a good day. I'm swacky, you know? So, so that was kind of a, a little tidbit from, from the language there. Oh, and I do, I, I had this, uh, I was listening to the Peace Corps, uh, the, the podcast with the a lady from Ghana. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. The, um, and so as she was talking and she, she mentioned the Aachen language, I guess mm-hmm. is the language group. Well, that was our language, you know, and so I knew that, of course, you know, this is an African language, but, you know, it being divided so long. But, yeah, it was interesting to hear, you know, that still now in Ghana, you know, this Aachen language and then my language was an Aachen language. And and uh, so anyway, so it's just amazing uh, that uh, these these connections are all still there. So even though we served in these other far from places, there's still an opportunity for Peace Corps volunteers to, you know, kind of come together and say, wow, you have a very similar experience and uh, or a similar language or, or whatever. And so that's the cool thing about Peace Corps as well. So uh, anyways, just to tie it all up in a bow for you. So perfect. Thank you for sharing uh, the, that word uh, swaki. I know that as a volunteer, I felt swaki many, many <laughs> times in my service. And even today, uh, you know, in, in the United States, there's some days you w- wake up and you're just like, yeah. I'm yep. just not feeling it, but hopefully, yep, that's right. hopefully today is not one of those days for you. Hopefully, uh, your the rest of your day is uh, without Swaki, and your weekend is 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 good. But thank you for taking some time. It has been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, Tyler, and uh, good luck with the podcast going forward. Definitely. And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. Thank you for taking some time to uh, listen to Chris's story, to uh, allow me the opportunity to help tell his story. If you've been enjoying the show, make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to so you get a fresh new episode delivered to you every single Tuesday when I release them. If you are a current or return Peace Corps volunteer and want to come on the show and tell your story please reach out you can do so via instagram or one of the best places is actually to head on over to my peacecorestory.com and click on uh, there's a big share your service button uh there's a few buttons all over the place i, I try to make it pretty easy uh share your service share your story you can find somewhere to click and uh, fill out that form and then i will be in touch the next time uh, i do a big batch of uh, recordings well It has been my pleasure to spend some time with you. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours?